You're listening to Weird Cities Inside the Goldmine. Tonight, the films of Michael Crichton. Only here on Weird Cities Network. Now on Bobby. Listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, the films of Michael Crichton on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening and welcome to the fifth episode of the eleventh season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, the Maven of Sleaze, Virago of Vituperiveness, and whatever else we come up with, <laughs> Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, like I said, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everybody. So, yeah, tonight we'll be talking Michael Crichton, of all people. I'll give you a little bit of background. John Michael Crichton was born at the height of World War II in 1942. He was the son of a journalist, born into a relatively safe and secure, if not somewhat privileged, Long Island environment. Following in his father's footsteps, he majored in lit at Harvard, see what I mean by privilege, <laughs> but dropped out after submitting an Orwell essay under his name and getting a B-minus on it. He said, you know, if Orwell wasn't good enough for this guy, why the hell am I in this major? So he switched to, of all things, biological anthropology and got his B.A. in that instead. He actually wound up guest lecturing on that subject at Cambridge right out of college, if you can believe that. He then enrolled in Harvard once again, this time doing med school, but like a lot of folks apparently, found himself dissatisfied with his career choice along the way. Actually for a good reason for a change. He couldn't stand how hospitals, in particular Boston Hospital where he did a rotation, pulled the thin blue line deal, closing ranks to protect doctors at the expense of patients in terms of medical malpractice. So he did complete his doctorate, but rather than becoming an internist or what have you, he dropped out and decided to become a writer. I guess in those days, writers and radio personalities, the original podcasters, weren't devalued and generally unpaid, which says a whole hell of a lot about what's wrong with modern society. He wrote a whopping 26 fiction novels, at least nine of which were made into films we'll be discussing tonight, before winding up writing screenplays for Hollywood which quickly led to his taking over as director and eventually producer of several more. The first several books he wrote under a pen name, or actually several pen names, before he wrote the novel that became his first film, though not yet his director, The Andromeda Strain. He had, as you may imagine from his background, a great interest in both medicine and technology, particularly computerization. His screenplays and films tend to be rather forward-thinking in the latter respect, and he seems to have either predicted or latched onto the first advances towards things like computer-generated imagery, artificial intelligence, smart technology, in particular weaponry, and robotics, all of which, alongside some medical affairs, are generally the focus or underpinnings of his well-crafted tales. And while his characters are often cipher-esque, with a general lack of real emotion or connection to each other in the worlds they inhabit, his work does tend to harken back to the glory days of science fiction, when new technologies, ideas, and imagineering of the as-yet-untapped vistas recognize the inherent dangers of a flawed mankind, meddling in things they honestly do not fully understand, leading to tragic, if not catastrophic, results for everyone. We did a show specifically on the sci-fi of the late 60s and 70s late last year, but no acknowledgement of the genre would be complete without speaking to the films of Michael Crichton. So here we are. <laughs> so anything you want to add? Yeah, it's very interesting. Besides the, the films that he directed, which we're primarily going to like 
center on. Now, there, there's not a ton of them, but no. they're, they're very interesting. A lot. Mm-hmm. You know, as you mentioned, he, he had written screenplays for a lot of films that he did not direct. We'll touch on a couple of those tonight as well. Yeah, and, and one of them is, is To the Day, one of my favorite science fiction films, The Andromeda Strain. Robert mm-hmm. Wise, of all people. I mean, you talk about, gosh, we could do a Robert Wise show. Guy who did musicals and, and show tune stuff. And then did Star Trek, the motion picture, which yes. is a very good film. Yes. Before that, did the Andromeda Strain, which is like one of the most heady and yet hardcore sci-fi films mm-hmm. ever. True. And, and it has a cast of people that, you know, it's not at all an action movie, but it has the most ball-breaking final moments where you're like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, this is an edge-on-your-seat film, and, and yet... And it's very forward-thinking. It predicted something that just recently happened. We'll get yeah, into that. yeah. Uh, yeah, there's that. And the Terminal Man, George Siegel. There's a guy also, we could probably pencil it in one day, depending on your, your opinion of him. Very good mm-hmm. actor. Oh, I like George Siegel. Uh, very good actor. And he did some amazing films. I mean, like The Owl and the Pussycat? <laughs> actually, I think I like that film. It's really hot. Now, don't give me I was going to say, Spicy was fucking hot in oh that film, God, which is unbelievable. So anyway... I, I can't believe that. I'm like, yes, somebody else noticed this. <laughs> well, no, no. I really like George Siegel a lot, and I, I respect a lot of his work. He kind of disappeared for a while. But anyway, let's go back to The Terminal Man. It's it's a movie. There were a couple of pictures like that at the time. The Mind of Mr. Soames with Terrence Stamp, mm-hmm. uh, which which had a similar theme about science and you know working on the, the brain of somebody and things happening and this terminal man made this guy incredibly violent and it was very unusual to see George Siegel in a role like this 1972 film Crichton was also involved in pictures he did not direct Mm -hmm. which are weird yeah (laughs) Uh, like uh, Sphere I think that was Wolfgang Peterson picture I'm not sure yeah we'll be talking that later and and Sphere actually is an interesting movie Mm -hmm. one of his later pictures was Directed or? No, that he wrote. Oh, yeah. It was Rising Sun, one of the later Sean Connery films, 1992, mm-hmm. which, I you know, don't laugh, but, it, it, you know, Sean and Wesley Snipes, and Wesley Snipes was still the shit at the time. I love Demolition Man, so I'm not going to say nothing about Wesley Snipes. <laughs> and, and Blade, too. No, no, it was, I, I'm not saying anything bad about Wesley. I'm not saying anything yeah, bad about And Rising Sun is pretty good. It's actually kind of weird <laughs> so the, the, the screenplays of movies he did not direct are very interesting and of course there's the biggie and we'll get to that so uh first off the andromeda strain 1971 the first film we'll be discussing tonight has an unusual cast let's run through the notables first richard o'brien of the entertaining chamber of horrors which i believe we discussed in our burt reynolds show i see he had a cameo in that and joe don baker's the pack which we talked in our joe don baker show Arthur Hill of the Killer Elite and Future World, which we talked in our Peter Fonda show. James Olsen of the Mafu Cage. And the hilarious Damiano Damiani incest possession film Amityville 2, which I love. And Kate Reed of Death Ship and High Point. George Mitchell of Phoenix City Story, The Old Noir. And Kid Galahad from our Elvis movie show. 
It's actually the most Michael Crichton-esque film that he didn't direct himself. This one comes from Robert Wise, as you mentioned, who's been kicking around since the Val Luton-produced Curse of the Cat People and Boris Karloff's The Body Snatcher, Day the Earth Stood Still, Klaatu Barada nicked the other. West Side Story. West Side Story. The Haunting with Richard Johnson. And all the way up to, as you've mentioned, the Star Trek The Motion Picture, which we talked in our Shatner show. I love that movie. I always did. Despite everybody talking, oh, it's so slow, it's so slow. Yeah, well, watch the unedited original theatrical cut. Yeah, it's slow, but it's a good freaking film. It's a good film. It's very heady. (laughs) Nothing like the later stuff. And with some very early CG effects in this film, from Douglas Trumbull of 2001, which we talked in our Stanley Kubrick show. This one kicks off with a creepy silence, as some government-type surveil a town where everyone's dead, like that old Avengers episode, I can't remember the name of it, or that scene uh, from Face of Fu Manchu. Murdersville, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that a secret government satellite had crash-landed, spreading a mysterious alien virus. And the rest of the film is this team of top-secret military scientists trying to find a cure, which concludes in a somewhat open-ended manner, just to make sure the public is even more paranoid and dream of weird conspiracy theories. It's a slow-moving picture in a lot of ways, but it's also very terse, particularly for the era. It's much better than similar fare like Capricorn 1, which we talked in our Elliot Gould show, and far more realistic and technology-fetishizing than that nonsense bit of the moon landing was faked horseshit, particularly in the wake of COVID, monkeypox, AIDS, SARS, and now a resurgent polio scare. So this film was actually pretty prescient. I did like it. It is slow, but it's, it's a really good film. So what's your take? Oh, no. I, I spoke earlier a few months ago about it, and yeah, it's a great film. People should really revisit this. And in the wake of all these popping up of uh, pandemics and resurgent diseases. And yeah, it's <laughs> even more scarier. And also, um, I'd love to see a 4K version of this. It's, it's very studio set. Yeah. No, they're in a, where are they, missile silo or something? Yeah, they're underground in a silo, yeah. They're underground in the silo, yeah, so it doesn't get out. And in a way, I think also uh, George Romero got his idea for the crazies. And also, uh, what was it Day of the Dead when they were underground? Yeah, Day of the Dead. And there's another yeah. film like this that I can't think of the name of. It's actually on a twofer from MGM, back when they used to do the double features. Chosen Survivors, that's it, I think. Oh, Chosen Survivors. Yes. With uh, Jackie Coogan. Yes. Alex Cord and a bunch of people we can't remember at the moment. Yeah, and actually, that wasn't bad either, because that, that one was the government trying to see they were experimenting. What would happen if there was a Holocaust and we took people, saved them, in quotations, put them in an underground place, except there were bats there. Nobody checked that out. Yes. Remember? Yep. Yeah. 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 That's actually not a bad movie. It was a very good film. I actually thought of that when I watched this one. Yeah, yeah, no, John Armstrong, yeah, we both agree. That's that's a terrific movie. Next. So, 1973, Westworld, Crichton's first theatrical production. He served as both screenwriter and director, something that would recur throughout his career. Likeable, and from the look of it over the decades, all-around decent human being, Richard Benjamin of TV's Quark, Scavenger Hunt, Love at First Bite, and Saturday the 14th, and sidekick James Brolin of The Car, Amityville Horror, and Tony Curtis's Boston Strangler head out to Planet Delos, a music park for the rich that we discussed previously for its less successful but still quite interesting future world in our Peter Fonda show. Split into Roman, Medieval, and Westworlds, the idea is that for thousands of dollars a day, which is probably millions nowadays, rich yuppies can indulge their childhood fantasies of winning princesses and fighting knights, being a decadent Roman patrician, or sleeping with can-can whores and getting in barroom gunfights with sophisticated humanoid robots who come out none the worse for being filled with human spunk and gunned down in cold motor oil the next day. 
Of course, as they operated on AI and were further constructed by fellow computers and machines, overprivileged humans trying to take advantage of them results in a de facto robot revolution, and it's a bloody one as rare survivor Benjamin discovers in the terse final act. Stalked by an emotionless, unkillable Yule Brenner of the Ten Commandments, Tony Curtis's Tyrus Bulba from our Tony Curtis show, Adios Sabata Fuzz from our Burt Reynolds show, The Ultimate Weapon and Policioteshi Death Rage from our Italian crime Policioteshi show, Benjamin must overcome his civilized persona to embrace an uncomfortable atavism to survive, leaving the film ended on his haunted, broken gaze as a result. This was some powerful shit in the era of the Alan Aldo-style new man, when feminism was at its most prominent and guys were embracing their inner sensitivity. The post-hippie, men don't eat quiche generation. There were a number of films like this, Burt Reynolds' uncomfortable if not damn ugly deliverance being the most obvious, but Westworld hammers the existential struggle of manhood home like few other films before or since, with themes and scenarios that would later result in films like The Terminator and the rather decent if a border streaming series Brave New World. All sorts of sociocultural concerns were thrown into the mix, from the hubris of the gentrified to the exploitation of those deemed lesser, be they other races, the economically less privileged, or animals in nature themselves, to the aforementioned question of what it means to be a man in a changing world, and it hits a home run in every one of them if you know how to read it. Being such a popular film and eventual franchise, even to this day, you would have thought that more viewers would have paid attention. Instead, it seems like we're hell-bent on letting basement-dwelling incels of all ages turn the clock backwards in a pathetic attempt to assuage their egos and validate their failures at life and socialization. Still, it's a damn good film, much less as a first-time directorial effort. And did I mention Dick Van Patten is in this? <laughs> so what's your take? Well, not only Dick Van Patten, Rachel Barrett, those Star Trek fans, she plays uh, a madam of uh, one of the bordellos in Westworld. It was interesting knowing a few years later, Majel's backstory in life, that she was like, no, she was like... Uh-huh. Uh, Poor girl. <laughs> yeah, she has some issues. Anyway, yeah. um, Heavy drinker. Uh, this is a great film. It's with budgetary limitations, they created a lot. It's an ace casting thing to get Yul Brynner as the robotic gunslinger because Yul's pretty much vision wise, he's playing he's playing the hero from the the, the Magnificent Seven. That's probably yes. like the, the base of what they they create this robot from his sentient version, this uh, cyborg, whatever. And he's unkillable. He keeps coming back. And 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 it's almost like. You could almost see you know, the AI there is not perfected. You could almost see he has something there, but it's not because he's just a killing machine after a while. And you're right. Richard Benjamin at, in this time before and slightly after this time period was very popular in this. This thing is a sensitive, the sensitive guy. He did a lot of comedies. He did some drama films. He did a lot of Broadway. He did a lot of off-Broadway. I actually met him. Because a friend of mine, this is an aside you did not expect, a friend of mine knew Paul Apprentice, Richard oh. Benjamin's wife. Yes. And they were doing a lot of Alan Ackburn shows. <laughs> Absurd person, singular, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend said one day, oh, want to see Paul Apprentice? Like, really? <laughs> you want to meet Richard Benjamin? I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, we don't have to see the show. It's okay. You know, they're good in it, but it's okay. He said, we go to we go stage. And she's like, oh, we're going to a stage. And she's like, can't you autograph? So we go. They came out because he called them. Mm-hmm. And one of those big ass old cell phones, remember the ones that were like. Yep, the big block ones. Yeah. Four, four feet long. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're here. And With a giant antenna. <laughs> so just like big, burly black dude came out, ball guy, you know, like one of these fake rings looking guy. He goes, yeah, Richard said, you guys can come in and follow me. 
So we go, we're in the dressing room, and like this Richard Benjamin, Polar Apprentice, like, oh, nice to be. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. fuck. What's world? <laughs> Was he as nice as he comes off? He's such a nice. I got a couple of pictures, actually. I got pictures with him. I stupidly took him with the Polaroid. Yeah. It was back in the day. I'm jealous. So they, the, the color ble- bleeds out. Yeah. But yeah, no, I got pictures of him. My friend bought Polar a bouquet of flowers. Mm-hmm. Nice people. I am jealous. I always love Richard Benjamin. <laughs> such a nice guy. And he actually gave us tickets. Did you see the show? We were like horroring and having. Well, yeah, we've seen the Alan Ackburn show. Uh, it was here previously with another cast. You guys haven't seen the show, have you? Wait, here. <laughs> so he gave us tickets for a later performance. Like, all right, wow, this is cool. Wow. Yeah, I, I met him. There was a side. Sorry, guys. Anyway, so I, I always liked Richard Benjamin. Cause, you know, I, Me too. All right. You know, be, being an Italian-American and other things and you being an Italian-American, mm-hmm. we – we saw actors that were obviously maybe like a, of a Jewish heritage in, in their mix. And to see them as like hero type guys was really interesting. And, and you know, I, I really like, you know, what he did with the swallow. I mean, the guy really worked hard. Such a great film. And, so, and Yul Brynner, of all fucking things, got accolades for, <laughs> for, for a part with very little dialogue. Mm-hmm. And he did, you know, his, his career around this point was at the point where he was, you know, he just did a bunch of stuff in Italy, and he was playing, like, gangsters and spies, and, you know, he had to have... The stuff that was traditionally considered at that time to be, okay, you're on the balls of your ass, you're not really making it anymore, you're just going to get by. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, your brother's like, you're fucking great in this part. And he's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, got, it, it made money. You know, it got a lot of acclaim. Uh, who else is in it? Steve Franken. Did you mention Steve Franken? No. Is he, Steve Franken was one of these guys, like these early SNL guys, Saturday Night Live guys, who would appear in things. And yeah, Dick Van Patten's news. <laughs> um, oddly enough, the because they had to be careful. The I'm trying to be careful with this. Oddly enough, the the because um, I read the book. Mm-hmm. As well, and then the for the film version, the lore to go nastier mm-hmm. because you know basically these two guys are going to Ireland where all their fantasies are going to be yep fulfilled. Oh no, it's very obvious that people were screwing these robots, and actually Roland does. <laughs> so yeah, Roland does, and you know what? I want to add in as an aside one of the one of the best adult films. Uh, Haven's uh, Sex World. You really think that was one of the best? <laughs> it was okay, but... Well, I mean, for story and being imaginative <laughs> and having hot scenes... I remember, I think I had mentioned it before, when we brought it up in our adult film yeah. show, I actually remember, as a child, going into the city with my folks, it was probably for a comic convention or some shit, because it was around that time, and seeing the Sex World bus, you know, the one they have in the beginning yeah, yeah. with the big giant thing on the side... I saw that going around, you know, when you first go in there, I forget it was Lincoln Tunnel or the bridge, but there's like a section that curves around and you have to pay so for whatever. A bus. I saw it and I remember I was pointing out, I was like, what the hell is this? You know, my folks like, why is this bus like sex world? What's going on over there? That was the bus that was probably going to the Lincoln Tunnel and they were shooting that scene, you know? Who knows? Maybe they got our car on film. I have no idea. I didn't see it, but, you know, still, I was there for that, so. I, I, I actually always thought Sex World would have been a great sequel to Westworld, you know? <laughs> anyway, 
But no, so it's, anyway. it's, it's, we both agree. Well, Westworld's a, a terrific movie to come in on. It's a really yes. good one. Yes. Now, you had actually mentioned The Thermal Man, which I sadly was unable to see. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, and also, there was a film that, of all people, Paul Williams, you know, the, the little uh, short fellow who was in stuff like Family of the Paradise, very popular at the time in the 70s, had directed this film that was based on a Crichton book called Dealing, or the Berkeley to Boston 40 yeah. Rick Lost Bag Blues. What? You get the idea, it's about drug dealing, but uh, I don't know anything about either of these films, so if you need to speak to them, go ahead. Well, The Terminal Man... I'm going to try to make this short, guys. You know, but we're going to have lots of asides. Actually, this is turning into a fun show. Uh, we're going to have lots of asides. Like, so, The Terminal Man, directed by Mike Hodges of Get Car fame, British director. And it stars George Siegel. I had mentioned earlier you know, my thoughts about George Siegel uh, as an actor and a presence. And it's, it's a weird film because Crichton had written the screenplay based on his own book. And apparently... It may have been rewritten by Mike Hodges, or maybe the studio took out Crichton's credit for that and just left him with the base doc. Mm-hmm. And this happened a lot in the early 70s. So uh, George Siegel, of all people, plays a, a scientist who suffers from epilepsy, seizures, blackouts, etc. Mm-hmm. And so there's some experimental procedures to reduce you know, his, his violent behavior. Mm-hmm. So he becomes like a loving guy. A nice guy, except whatever they did to him suddenly made him become a homicidal maniac. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's it's a very weird, it's a very brutal film. It's a very dark film for somebody like George Siegel. But then again, around this time period, he was doing some uh, counterculture stuff. Yes, he was. And so it kind of fit in with the way he was a very experimental actor. People kind of forget George Siegel was not always funny man, ha ha. He was a really good, tough guy. I'm actually tagging him onto the list now for future shows. <laughs> and so this this movie has a lot of familiar faces for a relatively small cast. Joan Hackett, people might remember the name, but Richard Dysart, who's also in uh, John Carpenter's thing, Jill Clayburgh, mm-hmm. Donald Moffat, mm-hmm. uh, Michael C. Gwynn, who actually was in Hammer's Revenge of Frankenstein is in this, uh, James B. Sicking, a familiar TV personality, it's it's a bleak film. It ends on a bleak note. It's not. I actually read the Terminal Man by Crichton, and it's actually so similar to it. So I, I bet somebody, because it's a UK financed film, I bet somebody just said, you know, we're going to remove his writer's screenplay credit. But uh, which you know, again, not not unheard of, late sixties, early seventies. But yeah, it's a film I'd recommend, especially people who like George Siegel films. Mm-hmm. 1978 now we go up to for the great train robbery Crichton takes a bizarre detour into period piece comedic heist film with his highly enjoyable lush looking costume epic we cover this in both our Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland shows but the long and short of it is that it's both visually sumptuous and loads of fun even beyond the two notables in the lead Leslie Ann Down who I always liked when I was younger is at her sexiest particularly in her merry widow outfit seducing Connery in one memorable scene it's really all about the sort of silly, crowd-pleasing heist picture. The Italian job, which we talked about in our Michael Caine show, failed at so miserably. This film, in marked contrast, succeeds. But what in this says Michael Crichton? That's all I'm going to say about it today. But we've covered this twice before. In much yeah, yeah, show. we covered this twice before. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, got Sean Connery, Donald Sutherland as partners. Did we say more? They worked very well together. I'm surprised they didn't do this again. Mm-hmm. Is something else. It may have been 
unbeknownst to us issues, who the hell knows, but no, they seem to, to work really well together. It's a period piece, really hard to put, pull over. It's a Crichton film, just budgetary concerns. It's a period piece taking place in the late 1800s. Yes. Lots of stuff with trains, old, oh yeah, old school British trains, and, and it's like, this is not easy to pull over. It's an adventure, it's a heist film. I like heist movies. Yes. Um, Me too. And Leslie Endown, okay, Leslie Endown. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a fun film. It's got more fans of this kind of film, the genre. It does have, which is a bit nice. It's one of the few films I revisited it for the show. Mm-hmm. It's got very few recognizable faces aside <laughs> the three leads. Yes. Which which I I was astounded by. I was like, why well, this person looks familiar? No, it's not that person. No, it's not that person. I mean, uh, Andre Morel, who was in a few Hammer pictures, who I, I enjoyed, has a very bit part as a judge. But other than that, I think that that's, that's attributed to its uh, likability. It seemed like to be a film of its own. It did very well at the box office, I think. Leslie and Down, whatever happened to her? I don't know. I mean, I know that of all people, Paul Stanley of Kiss was playing up there for a long time, but... I think he actually wanted to marry her, but she wasn't interested in that. So, but that's—I haven't seen her since God knows 1980. She kind of dropped out of films or something. I'm looking now because I'm curious as a fuck. Oh my God, she played Margaret Thatcher in a film called Reagan. <laughs> oh, it's shooting now. She's 68. Okay. Why would but, anybody want to play Margaret Thatcher? This is the second time. Didn't uh, what's her face there, Meryl Streep, just do that? No, the Gillian Iron Lady, Anderson, Gillian Anderson from the X Files. Okay, wow. Well, who's, who's British by by you, so. Why would you celebrate this woman? Eh, whatever. Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Leslie Andown had the most bizarre. She had a better career on TV mm-hmm. with um, ba, 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 ba. just like her appearances on bizarre TV shows, and then she did in film. It was so strange. Although she regretfully probably did Death Wish 5. <laughs> who, who what would. a piece of shit that was. But yeah. yeah. But no, this is such a terrific film from, from Crichton. And we did talk that one in our uh, Bronson show. Yes. Uh, so, uh, 1978, he does Coma. Back in the days post-Watergate, when people were encouraged to challenge corporate and institutional wrongdoing and outright malfeasance, author Robin Cook gave us Coma, which was enough of a hit to get this somewhat confounding film adaptation from Cook's pal Michael Creighton from back in their med school days. The always unlikable and rather unappealing Time Daily Without a Personality, Genevieve Bujold, stars as a whiny... That's cool, that's cool, you're cool, man. Yeah, call him like I see him. Uh, Starts as a whiny, grouchy resident doctor in a cold, argumentative relationship with fellow surgeon Michael Douglas. When her friend winds up in a coma after a routine operation, she uncovers the same thing that's been happening to several youngish and healthy patients, all tied to OR number 8. As she investigates and starts to challenge figures of authority within the hospital, she finds herself increasingly ostracized, even to the point of having a janitor who had tipped her off to an important clue bumped off and then being marked for assassination herself. There's a last-minute women in peril moment where she winds up on the operating table of OR 8 herself and a happy ending of sorts roll credits. 
there's a lot of naming cult actors and actresses here. From a cameo by a pre-Magnum, pre-Runaway Tom Selleck, then coming straight off his early cigarette ads. Smoky voice George Papard's spouse and co-star of Joe Don Baker fave Golden Needles, Elizabeth Ashley. Lois Childs of Moonraker, uh, which we talked in our Bond show. Noir standby Richard Widmark. Rip Torn of Beastmasters, Jinxed, and The Man Who Fell to Earth, which we talked in our For Those Who Fight Fallen show about David Bowie and others. Ed Harris of George Romero's Night Riders and Stephen King's Crap Show. I mean, Creep Show. <laughs> um, amongst other films, yeah. Pun intended. Not a Freudian slip. Joanna Kearns of the cheap-ass Korean kaiju APE. And Lance Legault, bit player from Half Dozen Elvis Films, Umberto Lenzi's Welcome to Spring Break, and episodes of Wonder Woman, The Dull Bixby Hulk, Book Rogers, and one of the Red Brown Captain America films. But beyond one creepy setting at Ashley's weird coma research institute, where living bodies hang from wires like beef hanging from meat hooks at a slaughterhouse, which was actually the poster to the film, which is worth looking up, it's very evocative, and some brief moments of a nigh-hospital horror slasher during her chase by the assassin, it's a cold, dry film without even a hint of warmth. While Crane deserves credit for pushing back against the studio trying to recast the lead as Paul Newman rather than as Cook's female protagonist, the fact is Bujold, even beyond her often bizarre half-Euro-trash, half-Brookline accent and oversmoked larynx, is not only far from Hollywood feminine lead in physical terms, she's also a cold, nigh-emotionless, and pointedly unlikable actress. I honestly can't think of a less appealing lead for a film at the moment, at least before the rise of reality and internet stars, quote-unquote, who should collectively be consigned to the rubbish bin of history. While its themes of paranoia, conspiracy, and corporate-slash-institutional wrongdoing, and Grace Notes emphasizing forward-thinking technology, are all very much hallmarks of a Crichton film, and certain aspects of the film, particularly towards the end, are worthy of a far superior later works of his, like Looker, Coma's a blemish affair marred by Crichtonian coldness and lack of affect being married to such an icy and unrelatable de facto heroine. I mean, come on, it was the 70s. They could have had so many actresses, ones we praised and even did shows on in this role. Why Genevieve Bajold of all people? So well, your take. Well, yeah, Genevieve was <sighs> Genevieve was very popular at the time because she she was she was a French actress, Canadian French actress. She did End of the Thousand Days, she played Anne Bolin. Mm-hmm. And she was in Earthquake. Yeah, that one. <laughs> and she was in Swashbuckler, Robert Shaw film. Wow, I would like to see that again. Only because it's Robert Shaw, sorry. <laughs> and uh, she was in Murder by Decree, the Sean Connery, Donald Sutherland film, which we spoke of. Yes. And she was in a lot of uh, art house pictures. Uh, oh, like, uh, was it Kuzlowski's Obsession? No, Alan Woodloff movies, like Choose Me, things like that, Trouble of Mine. Mm-hmm. And then she was in, after this, Dead Ringers, which she, she did a really <laughs> weird performance. Anybody ever seen that one? Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah, I'm not going to go into that one. That was probably, <laughs> probably one of Cronenberg. Cronenberg's last movies I thought about leaving. The last one. The last one Did you want to do a Cronenberg show? <laughs> do you? Sure. I love Cronenberg. Is there a... Not so much Dead Ringers, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we can do Cronenberg. Yeah, write that down. All right, we'll tag that in, too. But anyway, so she was like, ah, you say the, the taste of the day. You know, so they, they probably yep. figured she's... Foreign enough, speaks well in English. You know, Michael Douglas is coming off of a long stint of Streets of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Good-looking guy. And he has, and Michael still has to this day, a, a very interesting way about him, where, you know, which he did not get from his dad, or maybe he did, Kirk. 
I don't see it, but I know you're talking about it. It's, he doesn't come off anything like his father, even though they look identical almost. No, no, but no, he, there's a thing that Kirk had, that Michael has, which is not so much the, the resemblance, but it's like Michael can do a part where you think of him as a hero, as a sensitive guy, where he could turn around and be, don't trust this fuck. You know? That's true, but I also always see him, and I mentioned this later, as a perennial victim in his movies. He's like the, the protagonist that's put upon and reacting, or even trying to lash out angrily at the fact that he is powerless. So it's a strange kind of thing that yeah. you know Kirk would never play that. I don't care no, what kind of Kirk role he's in, noir or anything. Kirk would never play that because Kirk was always on top of what he was doing. Kirk was yeah. a tough guy. He's always, yeah. Elizabeth Ashley is in this as well. I mean, she was like a, a stage veteran, very rarely did film, and what she did, she played like evil prick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lois Childs, before she even did Moonraker, you know, she was a Bond girl in that. She appears in this. And and uh, I knew somebody that knew Lois Childs and uh, like, uh, you know, she was absolutely flummoxed how she got cast in Moonraker as a Bond girl. She was already, you know, a little older. <laughs> yeah, but she still looked really good. <laughs> no, she looked, no, she looked really good. Interesting, yeah, and Tom Selleck is in this and all those other people you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Interesting movie um i recommend people check it out they haven't seen oh yeah it. i mean it's certainly more than watchable and it does have creepy moments that really work if you're into slashers and stuff it's just she's so off-putting and next <laughs> next so 1981 looker i can't imagine why you'd want to change what god has given you a highly intelligent indictment of the plastic surgery industry the advertising industry and even the cosmetics and perfume industry it revolves around the unrealistic and, for many, perfectly fine-looking individuals, unattainable Hollywood ideal, decades before nip and tuck, the swan, Botox, and the fucking Kardashians ever became part of the national vocabulary. I remember a young Pamela Anderson in Playboy well before her days of infamy in film, VIP, and de facto porn fan with that asshole from Motley Crue, and she looked normal. She was actually very attractive. And then she reappeared a couple years later looking like a drag queen freak show. Fake lips, fake tits, and hers weren't exactly flat beforehand. And everyone goes crazy for her and her porn queen looking like Jenna Jameson. Suddenly everyone's stuffing their chest, their ass, their lips with silicone, yeah, what losing sensation. Yeah, I see. She's been posting lately, and, and I'm like, oh, is that? Wow, what happened here? <laughs> well, she was always white trash. Remember her father was like in her films with her and everything? Oh, no, I'm saying, I'm anyway. saying well, she had so much work done. Face. Yeah, but putting all the silicone crap in your body, that you're losing sensation in your erogenous zones just for some weird male fetish while paradoxically yelling about how being a stripper magically empowers women or some other pretzel logic horse shit. Please, girl. Pamela Anderson made herself repulsive, and it's a damn shame. Why would you even think of mutilating yourself, even unicizing yourself, for some vague ideal someone else sold you on? So anyway... Yeah. Looker stars, <laughs> stars Wolfen's Albert Binney as a plastic surgeon who keeps getting gorgeous clients requesting work done for the same advertising agency. When all of them wind up dying shortly thereafter, he starts to investigate. Despite winding up tapped by that very agency as a consultant for some reason, he and his new client-come-lover, who's the Partridge family's Susan Day, wind up as prime suspects for the deaths, which turn out to be part of a conspiracy relating to subliminal seduction-style subconscious manipulation of viewers of their television ads. It's once again very clearly a Crichton film and script, as both institutional malevolence and manipulation and forward-thinking computerized technology are very much at the core. There's more business about AI, 3D imaging, this was apparently the first film to include the nascent technology, followed a few years later by the recently revived Tron, 
and Shades of Runaway, a light gun that stuns victims into a state of immobility and a period of total mental blackout easily taken advantage of and gaslighted by the wielder. The combination of then quite fantastic sci-fi grade tech, an off-stunning cast of females and paranoid mystery, and a rather funny sequence involving computer-generated ads interrupted by a terse real-time chase and murder, was irresistible to youngsters like myself at the time it hit cable television not long after release. I recall a friend and I biking back from a town or two distant to catch this on HBO one evening. We both loved it. And like the aforementioned Wolfen, Nightwing, and the first Howling, and the Black Hole, has been part of my DVD collection since the dawn of the medium, all still in regular rotation all these years later. Ironically, Playboy Playmate of the Year 1981 Terry Wells also stars in one of her only film roles, as does Network, The Tingler, and Burt Reynolds' Sharky's Machine, Daryl Hickman, and Bruce Lee's student Armand Flint and the Internecine Project's James Coburn as the baddie. Hell, even Vanna White of Wheel of Fortune and baseball announcer Vin Scully take cameos. And there's a killer theme song that comes off very much like Pat Benatar crossed with Quarter Flash. The same act drops another track later in the film. Somebody really needs to put the soundtrack out after all these years. It's quite good. Best film in Crichton's career, hand down, as far as I'm concerned. And still applicable and relevant in most of its warnings. It's a good one. I like the cast. I, I just never warmed to this movie. You know, Leigh Taylor Young, she was in Southern Green. Yes, that one. Mm-hmm. With Charlton Heston. And it's funny. She was a major star in that just about a few years prior. We took that one in our sci-fi in the 70s show. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was just, I don't know, she was, she was reduced to a smaller role. Susan Day, besides being from one of the partridges, partridges, <laughs> that's a tongue twister, folks, was also <laughs> in... She uh, didn't do too much on film of course. Didn't, wasn't Susan Day in, or I'm thinking someone else, in uh, Rock and Roll High School? No, that was, that was probably P.J. Souls. <laughs> well... Needless to say. So yeah, Albert Finney, James Coburn, Dobie Gillis. <laughs> yes, Dobie Gillis, Rand Hickman. Um, I don't know. I, I had a, I always had a problem with Looker because I just felt like, I don't know, it just didn't really click for me. And I Was it because it was as cold and flashy as the stuff it's making fun of? Maybe because it's cold and flashy as the stuff it's making fun of. But that's kind of a mark of Crichton anyway. His scripts are always kind of chilly and tech-heavy. Yeah, I just didn't... And it, it made less money than it cost to make it, which is a bad sign. Yes, sadly. Yeah, yeah, it was like a disaster. <laughs> I, I always loved it, though. You said the music, the music, uh, Barry D. Borzon, I remember that guy. And he did a lot of scores, and pretty much he was also cherry-picking popular tunes by then-current bands and adding them to the score. So, you know, I met the score being okay, and I just wasn't, like, too taken with that. The next film I like a lot more. All right, so 1984, Runaway. Tom Selleck, previously a bit player in coma and since made the heartthrob to aging housefrows as Magnum P.I., stars as a troubled divorcee with a bratty kid who gave up his job as a regular street cop after filling the nab a perp who then murdered a family in a home invasion. Now he's on a far less demanding job as a member of the Runaway Squad, who catch and fix defective robots that have effectively taken the place of manual labor and service workers, from farming construction to maid and nanny roles. Fortunately or no, he finds himself back in the fast lane when robots start turning homicidal. Eventually, it's discovered that someone has been inserting corrupted computer chips early in the production line that allow the robots to be turned against humans. Worse, the same guy, Kisses Heimwitz, better known as Gene Simmons, appears to have invented a special smart gun a la Looker, but this one fires a sort of heat-seeking missile type of bullet that's able to follow the victim wherever they run, and a similar form of spider-like robotic bomb. Q 
cute Cynthia Rhodes, who's a bit player in Xanadu, Flashdance, Staying Alive, and Dirty Dancing, and actually the girl who took over for Astrid Plane in Animotion, those of you who are 80s music fans, is his new partner who has the hots for him, and a near victim of Simmons' fancy bullet, which explodes after Selleck finally manages to extract it. Cheers Kirstie Alley, also of Nico Mastarakis' Blind Date the same year, and I did a typically career-spanning comprehensive interview with the man on Third Eye Central Podcast, appears as a former criminal associate of Simmons who winds up used to smoke him out and gets killed for her trouble. It's hardly on the level of Westworld or its closest apparent analog looker. Crichton himself admitted it's really just a cop film in sci-fi tech trappings, and that it really isn't saying any grand pronouncement about technology or how it impacts and alters society at this time. But if you dig stuff like Jean-Claude Van Damme's Time Cop, and we did a JCBD show as well, this one is a good pairing, and both Rhodes and, surprisingly enough, Allie, well before she got big as a house and started ranting with the size of Parker Stevenson's dick, <laughs> is still in her hot number phase, so it's well worth looking into as a pleasant and somewhat cheesy diversion. So, you said you liked it. What's your take? Wait a minute. I, was Christy Allie ranting about... You didn't know that? <laughs> It was right when she got big after Cheers, and she got involved with Parker. I don't know if they're still together or not. Oh, it's like John, but John Holmes size? Yeah. That's what she was saying. Yeah, she was going on, like, talk shows in the morning and stuff and talking about the size of his dick. I'm like, really, lady? Come well, on. She, I know she lost Low weight. Class. She looked really good and healthy. Then she became BBW again. I, which, <laughs> yeah, some people like that, whatever. But, yeah, you know, as you get older, it's not healthy. Um, <laughs> whoa. What, what, what role <laughs> do we turn off on now? So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I like Runaway. It's a a action film. You know, Tom Selleck forever looking for a feature film franchise. You know, he even did a Indiana Jonesy type thing too. Remember that? What was that? I do remember that. Oh, it's easy for me to find. It was called uh, Hold On There, folks. It, it's almost like when Chuck Norris did Firewall. Oh, High Road to China. Oh, okay. 1983. Mm-hmm. And he did Lassiter, which was kind of like a noir type thing before. It was better for him to, like, ride horses and do shit. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he begins a right-wing disappointment. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's it's... I liked it because it, for what it's, it's trappings and stuff, it's it's fun. It's always fun to see Gene Simmons in the role of a baddie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was his first time, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it was because before that he just did, you know, if you want to count it, Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park, which is hilariously bad. Uh, well, no, but that wasn't he, really a movie. It was <laughs> wasn't he Wanted Dead or Alive with Rucker Howard? But that was right afterwards. There. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Afterwards, in Trick or Tree, Never Too Young to Die with. Yep. John Stamos, a great actor. Um, great actor. <laughs> actually, John Stamos was drumming for the Beach Boys for like 20 years. Who knew? Fascinating. Who knew? But yeah, I wanted that are alive. Actually, actually, if we're going to cherry pick, Gene Simmons is better in that as a villain than he is in this. But I that like being said, yeah. no, it's, I, 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 thought, I always thought it was a lot of fun. Kind of cheap looking, though, in a way. Almost like they... A canon film. Almost like a canon film, yeah. And at this point, TriStar Pictures, which which gave us a lot of movies we like. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, TriStar uh, gave us some of those really old. What was that? The, the, the great Arnold film. The uh, What? Not Rod Hill. It was before that. No, uh, no. Uh, the one where he goes to Mars. Uh, oh, uh, Total Recall. Yeah, Total Recall and shit like that. You know, TriStar would amp up the budget, mm-hmm. you know, when, when they saw it. But when, when, when they didn't believe in a picture, they were just like, cut it. There was the Jerry Goldsmith, long time, great composer, did the score. You know, it's a, it's a really decent score. It's got elements of Looker. It's got elements of other Crichton stories and films. But I, I thought as a 
action film sci-fi thingy. It worked quite well enough. I think a lot of people haven't seen this for years, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Like I said, if you like Time Cop, you'll love this one. Yeah, but Jean-Claude Van Damme has a better ass. <laughs> well, okay, that's true. I won't go there. But... Come on. <laughs> He's definitely in better shape than, than Tom Selleck is. <laughs> Come on. Come but on. anyway. Right. So, you uh, get in touch with your manly manliness. <laughs> a man's man. Uh, so, <laughs> so 1989, physical evidence. An odd cross between the 80s-style gritty cop film and the cheesy legal drama popularized at the time by L.A. Law, this enjoyable enough oddity in the careers of both Teresa Russell and Burt Reynolds we talked in our Burt Reynolds show, but it's a weird one. Russell was known for her frustrated emotion and smoking hot sexuality, but here she's limited to a very coy cutaway of an off-screen love scene between her and Bert, and a chilly, fully-clothed relationship of sorts with the annoying yuppie junk bond trader Ted McGinley, Jefferson from Married with Children. His most memorable line was, and I quote this constantly, I want to move to L.A. and become a porn star. <laughs> Russell is the defense lawyer for Bert's tough guy renegade cop, who's almost a noir hero here, as he's also a blackout drunk with a past who's been framed for murder, and he can't remember that night, with his only real alibi being a girl who's married to a mobster, another of my favorite ladies of the era alongside Russell, headhunters Kay Lenz, who he's been having a quiet affair with. Things get complicated, particularly with dogged, misogynistic Ned Beatty of Deliverance and Superman as the DA. I always liked this film, despite its miscasting of Russell in such a chilly, business-like role. Fans are more accustomed to seeing her in smoky stuff like Ken Russell's Whore, which we discussed in a Ken Russell show, or Bad Timing, Essential Obsession with Art Garfunkel, of all people. Bert is doing his Seamus Hustle shtick amped up considerably by the neo-noir nature of the script. But what is it with Crichton in the later 80s? It's a rare case of Crichton directing someone else's script, yes. But still, this was his final directorial adventure, but he continued to write scripts and produce throughout the 90s with some major, if generally quite uncharacteristic, films falling under his aegis. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's a problematic picture. It's, it's um, you know, Nabiti, Chad McGinley, you know, a lot of familiar faces in this. You know, Kaylin's, Teresa Russell, who we all love. It seemed to be a picture, I, I'm prone to guess on this one, that maybe they brought Crichton in to save a failing film, which would make sense because it actually happened on a movie that John McTiernan, of all people, directed, which I actually enjoyed a hell out of. Also, a weird movie, which is The 13th Warrior, which is uh, with Antonio Banderas. It was from uh, Michael Crichton's novel, Idris of the Dead. Yes. And uh, let me hold on, folks, and try to get you some info. Um, I tried skimming it, and I wasn't impressed, so I didn't actually watch it. <laughs> I actually like the hell out of it. It's got the most bizarre. You know, Omar Sharif is in this, and you got, like, uh, Diane Venora and uh, a bunch of Russian guys and shit like that. And, <laughs> yeah, well, Probably shot in Yugoslavia or whatever was Russia. Yeah. And, but it's it's this weird thing where Antonio's still looking good. What year is this? Nineteen ninety nine. Antonio's mm-hmm. still looking good. He's sent by a sultan some fucking place to go somewhere and falls in love with a woman and then they meet these mysterious creatures from another place, another land, another world, another time. It doesn't make much sense. But Here's the thing. So John McTiernan, the diehard fame, apparently was going through a lot of issues, which is like after this film, John McTiernan did not direct. He actually went to jail for a couple of years. Wow. Something about taxes or IRS stuff. I think there might have been something else going on because since his release, John McTiernan has not 
fucking done anything. Mm-hmm. And you will never see another Die Hard film for obvious reasons. But they brought in the, 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 the writer of the novel, Michael Crichton, to do the reshoots. Mm-hmm. They figured, well, he's an established director. Yeah. This is one strange movie, which I liked. I actually saw this in the theater. I'm like, I like this. This is weird because it's a Lawrence of Arabia-esque thing with weird, yeah. strange supernatural elements and zombie-esque shit going on. I'm like, what is this? What am I watching? He's an uncredited director, but he's, he's credited with the, um, the script with the script and the, the reshoots. Yes, that's right. I heard he did uh, the official reshoots on it, yeah. So, 1993, Jurassic yep. Park. All right. Overrated piece of shit that still spawns sequels, rides, and theme park attractions all these years later. You know it's a Spielberg film instantly. Overblown, ridiculously bombastic John Williams score. Fucking kids front and center family and reconciliation at the core, cheap, dated-looking special effects, and a sense of wide-eyed wonder, as if a five-year-old was at the helm throughout. People love his films, and for the life of me, I could never understand why. Jaws aside, he's like a Hallmark card come to life. That stupid newspaper comic strip Love Is for a G-rated audience. I don't think I liked a single one of the man's films other than Jaws, even as a kid getting dragged to lunacy like Close Encounters or crap like E.T., Poltergeist, or at least when it hit VHS rentals, this steaming hunk of shit. Bruce Dern's daughter is in it, so is Sam Neill. Even my man Jeff Goldblum is reduced to a nebbishy character of a quote-unquote cool theoretical mathematician, but it's all about CG dinosaurs causing mayhem, just like a five-year-old boy were at the helm trying to make something quote-unquote cool. Yeah, the early conceit involves scientists playing God in the name of entertainment and the results thereof, which does vaguely qualify as Crichtonian, but just barely, particularly when the film as a whole is just another shitty Spielberg kids' adventure film. Crichton must have sold his soul and lost his mind along the way. You hate Spielberg. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do, and I hate this film. Going back to see it again, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, he's done, he's done, you know, time repeating myself, like, there, there's... A number of things I, I quite enjoy, but I'm not going to go there with this. So, it's okay. It's 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 a kids' film. It's funnish, you know. It's Jurassic Park is is what it is, and it's uh, it spawned a whole bunch of things, including the most recent one, which came out just a few months yep. ago. Uh, Jurassic Park number 411. <laughs> um, TV shows, video games, movies, it just never stops. Yeah, but the thing was with the recent one, they brought all the major cast members back from the first picture, second picture, third picture. <laughs> and you would think with lockdown and coronavirus, they got a lot, and apparently they had two years to work on the fucking effects. And everybody says the effects are terrible. <laughs> and I haven't seen the latest one, and I think it's going to be a death knell for it because it's like, you know, what are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> you got you got nobody who's working, so everybody's home or in this this warehouse doing the special effects and CGI. You can't make it look good. <laughs> so I, I, anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I hmm. I like I like Jurassic Park. It was fun. It was entertaining. I got nothing against it. Yeah, you know, sometimes I I got that little thing for family adventure films. It's okay, not too much. But I don't hate it with such displeasure that you do. But <laughs> so 1994, Disclosure, directed by Barry Levinson. They can come between me and my wife, move my family out, take my job, take the house, and I apologize to them? They call me a rapist, and I apologize. This is a joke. 
Sexual harassment is about power. When did I have the power? Michael Douglas, later the working man's frustration diatribe falling down, and a similar woman as predator epic Basic Instinct, stars as a long-standing company man computer tech exec who gets passed over for a promotion. Unfortunately, his new boss turns out to be his former living girlfriend, hired as the face for a new venture that's central to an impending corporate merger worth tens of millions to the company. When she calls him up to her office for an after-hours meeting, she comes on to him forcefully, I mean, to the point of blowing him. Despite finally realizing what he's doing to his wife and family and stopping us just before the point of penetration, it's already too late, and she's pissed off at Cordis Interruptus to the point of slapping him with a sexual harassment suit. Worse than the standard Me Too business of everyone believing the woman must always be the victim by default, the sleazy CEO is getting to everyone around him trying to make sure that he's silenced and forced into a position that's subject to an impending reduction in force, losing both job and stock options thereby. He takes on an aggressive lawyer and tries to countersue, but it's not just his new boss going after him anymore. They grab his admin and start tracing her words to frame what was then normal office interactions as predatory, even though she doesn't appear to see it that way at all. Thankfully, he mistakenly left his phone on in the middle of a voicemail to a friend and captured the whole office episode on tape. How many times do we hear him saying no on the tape? 31. Doesn't no mean no? You controlled the meeting, you demanded service, and you got angry when he didn't provide it, so you decided to get rid of him with this trumped-up charge. Moore isn't just a smoking hot ex looking for a steamy after-hours hookup. She's a conniving bitch with an axe to grind and the cutthroat scheming to climb to the top of the corporate ladder at any cost. Worse, she has a history of guys under her suddenly resigning, as Douglas Lawyer says, major red flags. There's some amusing business about how the new tech they're developing will make gender issues vanish and change human interactions, but it's only the invention of cell phones, instant messaging, and the use of internet avatars. Gee, that really revolutionized the world for catfishers. A film that really needs to be rediscovered to put some equanimity into this whole witch hunt hysteria of the Me Too movement and others like it. The knife can cut both ways. It's always a matter of individuals and their actions, not uniformly one gender victimized at the hands of the other. Despite being directed by the man behind such populist crap as Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, and Toys, you know it's a Crichton film because there's a whole plot hook in Denouement involving virtual reality and a plot to set him up for a major fall involving his department that she actually authorized cost-cutting product efficiency-causing changes to the end product over his head and then deleted all the evidence. Luckily, he has connections to the production facility, and when she tries to set him up at a shareholders meeting, she winds up getting shit-canned herself. Donald Sutherland is sleazy as shit as the CEO. Check out the gross nightmare Douglas has with Sutherland coming on to him using Moore's words in the elevator. <laughs> Dennis Miller gets an appropriate role as a shithead turncoat quote-unquote friend and subordinate in Douglas's department, and Douglas delivers his usual intense victim shtick, but it's really all Demi Moore's show. She looks the best she ever did and comes on like every guy's fantasy in the seduction harassment scene. Dirty talking and working the guy like a pro is practically Ellen Barkin in Sea of Love, if you can believe that. It's a bit overlong, but if you ever worked in corporate, major portions of this film will resonate in quite strongly at that. No, it uh, just brings back to mind like how, how good Michael Douglas was. It's, uh, this, this was in a period of a, a decade, if not more, where the guy was hitting fucking home runs, like mm -hmm. being the good-looking guy getting sucked up into affairs with femme fatales and paying the price. <laughs> he was really good at that, too. You know, because, like, yes. yeah, he did a couple pictures, not too many, where he was like, evil fuck. Yeah, Wall Street when he's Gordon Gecko. <laughs> yeah, but he really found a niche, though, playing like this, the kind of guy you wouldn't think would get into these situations. And, you know, but it's hard not to be in situations like this when things happen. This is very well done. Yeah. This is very, you know, it's like, but yeah, you're right. He says no so many times. 
people have condemned this as some kind of like anti-feminist diatribe. That's not it at all. No, He's no, just no. trying to show the other side that it's not always, you know, the world is gray. It's not black and white. It's you can't always say the woman's always right. I mean, yeah, a lot of times she is. No, but, you, you, know. you say no. You say no, and then she blows you like you've never been blown in your life <laughs> and against your wishes. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that? Yep, exactly. So. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, no, I'm trying to say. You know. And, you know, it sounds crazy anyway because you saying it like that. It's just like with the court scene there where he's talking to the, the mediator and he's like, okay, so she's Miss San Antonio and she came on to you and you didn't want that. Well, you know, it's, it's a mixed situation. But, you know, obviously the point being, it's not always one-sided like they try to play it. It's not always black and white. Yeah. So you got to watch the witch hunts. That's the bottom line. Yeah, no, but it was very good, though, because I'm glad that this film showed... The, uh, he said no, but he succumbed, and then you know. Well, he stopped himself before penetration, if that means anything. But it's already kind of late. <laughs> you might as well go for the gusto at that. Right point. at that point, fuck yeah. it, you already lost it. But and she's like screaming at him, like you bastard, get up here and finish what you started, otherwise I'm gonna screw you. And she does. Yeah, so. that's crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Why did Bruce Willis marry her anyway? Wow. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I can see screwing her, but marrying that. <laughs> So anyway, what else you got? Next, 1996, Twister. In no way does this come off like a Crichton film, I'm sorry. Amateur storm chasers driving right into the wake of huge dust bowl tornadoes to test some new meteorological device to gather data. That's basically the story here. The lead, Helen Hunt of the Trancers series, which we discussed in our Full Moon Pictures show, once again is far more likable than she was in that hard mad about you everybody loves, isn't obsessive as her trashy father wound up sucked out of their backyard fallout shelter, believe it or not, by a tornado as a kid. So she's pretty much a basket case. It's actually a hilarious scene. He goes up there like, oh, look, the latch is given on our fallout shelter and he gets sucked out. I'm like, oh. So anyway, she's pretty much a basket case from this. Bill Paxton of Mortuary, Weird Science, and no less than three Schwarzenegger films that we talked in our Schwarzenegger show, The Terminator, Commando, and True Lies, is her soon-to-be ex-husband, a fellow storm chaser who woke up and got a safer job as a news anchor, who's now here with his latest squeeze, Jamie Gertz of 16 Candles and the Steve Vai versus Ralph Macchio, the tar duel that saves Crossroads, to serve some long-overdue divorce papers and get on with his life. Of course, being a big-budget Hollywood affair, there's the expected quote-unquote happy ending reconciliation and a whole lot of CG roller coaster ride nonsense. For one of these throwaway summer movie blockbusters that's all empty-headed like this, it's quite watchable. And about the only bad thing you can say about it is that it's empty-headed and utterly pointless. But that's something you can say about all big-budget A-list Hollywood cinema, which is why I don't watch much of it, unless I have to for someone we're doing a show on. Really, though, for that level, it wasn't bad. You know, it's certainly watchable. It's, it's crap, but it's watchable. No, yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's watchable. Uh, Bill Paxton, one of his few leading leading male roles as a hero-type guy, uh, actually did really good. Cherry mm-hmm. Elway's, who, nobody ever liked him. <laughs> no. Uh, My drummer liked him for some reason. I mean, he was doing like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or whatever. He's like, oh, yeah, Carrie Ool's here. I'm like, what do you care about this guy for? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe he had a crush on him. What do I know? The cast uh, is odd. You know, even uh, Gary Busey's brother, Jake, is in this. Oh, God, Gary Busey. You heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's another Sleep show. Um, <laughs> Hel- it, what I thought odd about Twister was that I always thought Helen Hunt was already passe by the time she did Twister. Yes. But somebody kind of like probably looked up in the Rolodex and said, <laughs> let's see, she was in uh, Trances 3. <laughs> <laughs> I liked her in the Trances series. I liked her here. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. But the point being is like, 
this was like a big budget picture. Yes. And uh, it was like... She came cheap. <laughs> although Twister didn't do really super magic work, it did get her in a really good Jack Nicholson movie, which is not my 4K normally, like weird fucking pictures. But uh, as good as it gets, uh, Jack Nicholson picture. It's like the next year. Mm-hmm. But then I think everybody remembered Twister. So... Yeah. <laughs> So uh, she was just doing, like, bullshit work after that. Yeah. Yeah, she was a thing at some point. Wasn't she uh, some Supergirl or something like that? Or something no, kind of no, she was a big stink for that stupid Mad About You with Paul Reiser. It was a horrible show. I remember I was up at a Tower Records one time, and some sleazy Spanish guy was coming on to the girls that worked there. I was like, I think they have the ideal relationship. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? They're always bickering. She's, like, busting them around. She just clearly wore the pants in that show. I couldn't stand her there. Well, I, I watched a couple of episodes of the Mike Douglas, uh, Alan Arkin show that was on for two years. Uh, I forgot the name of that. And Alan didn't want to work anymore. He's, he's getting up there. Yeah. So Paul Reiser replaced replaced mm-hmm. different character. And so there was like this thing that Michael Douglas posted. I'm like, so who's that? Is that Paul Reiser? Holy shit. What <laughs> <laughs> about people changing? Anyway, so where, where are we off to now? All right, actually, it's the last one we're going to cover. It's 1998 Sphere, directed by Barry Levinson again. A cross between Ridley Scott's Alien and its many knockoffs and progenitors, from Bava's Planet of the Vampires and Toei's The Green Slime, to Disney's The Black Hole and Toby Hooper's Life Force, which we talked in our uh, Toby Hooper show, and not to mention John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which we talked in our John Carpenter show. And then popular big-budget detritus like James Cameron's The Abyss and Robert Zemeckis' Contact, this almost horror semi-sci-fi film almost works, but straddles a fence that apparently pleased no one at the time of release. For whatever reason, Barry Levinson is once again tapped to cover Crichton, and the cast is filled with names. Sharon Stone, still riding the crest of her brief fame from Basic Instinct, hearing a ridiculous butch haircut as the neurotic suicide-attempting marine biologist. Rain Man himself, Dustin Hoffman, as a shrink. Samuel L. Jackson, his own self, as a mathematician, if you can believe that. Beauty Shop and the Last Holidays, Queen Latifah as well. The first one to die. And the over-the-top pervert from Polanski's Bitter Moon, Peter Coyote, mm. as the military asshole running the operation. And we talk Bitter Moon on our Polanski show. There's apparently an alien spaceship lying at the bottom of the sea since the 1700s, and the military wants to send this motley crew down in a southern bathosphere to investigate. There's a definite horror sci-fi atmosphere of suspense, if not terror, that predominates most of the proceedings, particularly as they gradually uncover the mysteries of the long-buried spacecraft. There's a computer that rather improbably shows them its last records, traveling through space and quote-unquote accidentally running into a black hole, which is rather absurdly visualized, more like a wormhole on a Farscape or warp speed on Star Trek. There's the titular sphere, which Jackson simply walks into and returns with no memory and acting a bit weird for the rest of the film. There's an invasion of jellyfish that penetrate Latifah's diving suit and eat her alive. Then the computer starts getting binary code messages, which, when translated, result in a Prince of Darkness-style conversation with something from beyond. So far, so good, except that the thrills are often muted and made safe for a PG-13 audience, and it all turns out to be a Scooby-Doo meets that old BBC show The Champions Den Almont. In the end, it promises a hell of a lot, seems to be delivering much to the surprise of everyone given its big-budget Hollywood A-list cast and provenance, and then pulls the rug right out from under genre aficionados over and over again. I have to say, I like the first two-thirds of the film very much. The fact that I name-checked so many good films, many of, not all of which were discussed in earlier shows we did on those name directors, says a lot. 
But like an event horizon for the Disney crowd, it promises much and delivers precious little, teasing it being a far superior film but winding up a primetime TV-worthy mediocrity when all's said and done. It's more than watchable, but be warned, it's not going to deliver in the end. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, we're, we're doing this Michael Crichton show, it's like, and, and a lot of uh, so interesting Barry Levinson films have come up. Yeah, you know, which which is like kind of piqued my interest. Like, you know, mm-hmm. take a look at Barry's uh, CV here. Yeah, it's like a cross pollination of I don't know, was it in the novel? I read it, but it was a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. Was it a, a a collision between the abyss and the event horizon? <laughs> you know. It's, it's one of Crichton's later books, too. So uh, it certainly comes across like that in the uh, in the film. It's like a little event horizon. It's a little bit a bit the abyss. You know, the uh, uh, I think guy's been making the same movie for the last 25 years. Uh, he directed Titanic. Hello? Yeah. Oh, you finish up? <laughs> no. Who directed Titanic? Was that James Cameron? James Cameron, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, James Cameron directed The Abyss, right? The Abyss, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't take his name for a minute. What were you doing, drinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been, that's the problem. <laughs> See, sir. Yeah, no, it's just like a, like a collision between James Cameron and The Abyss and mm-hmm. Event Horizon. And like, mm, and yeah, it was, it was adapted by the guy who's done the Resident Evil films. Yes, we all know those. <laughs> Actually, some are okay. Some are, you know. Some of them are, yeah. I, I think one of the newest ones was really good. Uh, when yeah. they went to uh, Raccoon City and there was like a small-scale invasion and you're following Jill around. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is really good. Yeah, they're not that bad. That guy's been working mm-hmm. there. Also, he married, I think, Milo Jovovich. Or whatever it is. Oh, Milo Jovovich, yeah. So, yeah, I would. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a weird movie. It's a strange film. But having read... The Michael Crichton book, which, you know, folks, it's been so long. Yeah, I, I really can't say how much has changed from it, but it's, it's definitely a strange creature of a movie. It's not horrible, like you even said. It's just yeah. strange. It's out there. Good I cast. like it more than Twister, but, you know, it's also more frustrating than Twister ever could be. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, that's it, unless you have anything else to throw in. Yeah, I think we, uh, we did a basically good covers job. it all. Yeah. yeah. So, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed a little drawing room chat on Michael Crichton. Next week, I believe we'll be doing Richard Harris in the 70s, correct? Yes, that'll be yes. fun. So, if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also at Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1. We're on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Uh, we're also on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com, iTunes. Uh, just look us up under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. If you want the ID, it's 553402044. We're also on Spotify and Amazon Podcasts. Again, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. So, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, yeah, we've got a few shows planned for the future. Like I said, the next one's going to be Richard Harris. Right. I know we'll be tackling uh, Richard Burton, right. similar kind of thing. There was another one that we had mentioned. Oh, wasn't there? there was three. Eastwood. Oh, well, Clint Eastwood, that's correct. Yeah. And uh, now, hopefully, I'll just add two more from tonight's show, as you already heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Like to, you know, things come to you. It's like, you know, this is so, some interesting work this person's done. Or, 
oh, we haven't done this before. Why don't we do this? You know? mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't have to be um, career-expanding things, you know, like like, like you said, you know, Richard Harris in the 70s. In the 70s, yeah, we're just kind of taking a block that was particularly interesting, at least to me. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like that. You know, then we can, we, we can also make the block like three hours long. You know? <laughs> yeah, <I do. laughs> But, yeah, oh, so we said we were going to do a Cronenberg show and uh, George Siegel, maybe, so. Yeah, yeah, Get, I like uh, Siegel. Let's do a Siegel before Cronenberg. Okay. Yeah, well, there you go. There's like five more shows lined up already. So, Cronenberg can be depressing at times. Yeah, well, that's kind of the nature of the beast. I know. Body horror and <laughs> social politics. So, anyway, we will see you again shortly. Shortly. Thanks Richard for listening. Harris. All right. Good show. I'll see you next time around. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. 
Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. Hello, there you go. Alright, here I am. You got one hell of an echo chamber going on. <laughs> How about that? Is that better? Mm, well, you're loud and clear. It's just you sound like you're at a distance, like a hollow. Now it... <clears throat> okay. How's that? Is that better? Mm, it's about the same, actually. <laughs> Still echoey? Yeah, it's not a major concern, but it, you do sound like you're in a bit of a tunnel. How's... Okay, wait, wait, wait. Plenty of clarity. It's just, you know, that hollow... Hello? Open. Is that better? No. Oh, wait, 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 wait. How about that? Uh, it's probably better. I'm not shutting off the air conditioner, that's for sure. But yeah, it's been a crazy freaking day. I mean, I've been running around like a lunatic. And this was after an emergency trip to the dentist this morning. 
I had this thing on my tooth since childhood. Uh, some I got a fight with some guy that was a lot bigger than me, and because that's the way I am. And uh, I got knocked down on the pavement at one point and chipped my one of my front teeth. So I always had this little chip thing that they put in there, you know, like, not a filling, but one of those kind of bonded whatevers. It came out once before, and this guy was kind of a scam artist. We got kind of railroaded into this guy. We we were looking for another dentist. We had a dentist that was great. He had not retired, but he went back down to you know south of the state. The people that took over the same place, even though they didn't really tell you that there was a big changeover, mm. was these it was a young Korean girl who was kind of cute, and some other one that was assistant or whatever. The two of them were there giggling to each other and literally like rubbing her tits on my face when I was <laughs> they were doing it. Yeah, and I was like, what the hell is going on here? I mean, you know, it wasn't unpleasant, but I'm like, what? Well, well, okay. This is strange for a dentist's office. And then it turned out they tried to scam me for, like, extra stuff that they didn't even do. And then they pulled the same shit on my wife, who was also going there. We said, screw this, and we actually got a low-end lawyer to, to send them a, a cease and desist letter. So they finally went and said, okay, yeah, well, you can pay us, you know, whatever it was. Like, what we, they really would have gotten as opposed to the bullshit to try to charge us. And uh, don't ever come back here again. I'm like, yeah, no fucking problem. <laughs> so we were looking for a dentist, and we got a recommendation for this clown that was... We were supposed to get this one guy who was recommended but he's old so he's like yeah you know i'm getting old i don't really want to take on new clients anymore take one of my sons my, my sons are both in practice with me okay so we went to the one guy he turned out to be a scam artist that was like not just being a dentist he wanted to push everybody into like cosmetic oh, yeah. but all that kind of shit cosmetic dentistry so when he saw my chip had come out or whatever it was you know getting ready to fall out he says okay you know i can repair this but you know that's old technology we could do this better with this special bonding and you know, okay like, all right hang on, how much is it gonna cost okay not too bad so he goes ahead but what he did was he like drilled into the good part of the tooth mm -hmm. and so made it so that this thing would hang there better i guess the fucking thing i'm okay yeah it's been a while but it just fell out last night and i was like it wasn't even like eating it was afterwards i'm like that feels a little loose so i went in the bathroom and i just started like flossing a little bit you know not like i yanked it out or anything i was just kind of like it came out Popped right out. Not even like I pulled it. It just kind of dropped out of my mouth. I'm like, oh, fuck. Well, it's a live tooth, too, right? It was the front friggin' tooth, yeah. And I looked like, uh, if you, anybody watches NXT wrestling, I looked like toothless Timmy Thatcher. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? I can't go around like this. So I called the dentist last night. I'm like, look, this is, you know, they were already closed. I'm like, they're the emergency line. I'm like, eh, this isn't an emergency, but, you know, it pretty much is. I don't want to walk around with this giant hole in my tooth getting cavities and shit in there. Plus, looking like a goddamn idiot. I don't want to open my mouth in front of anybody. So, I mean, it probably wasn't that bad if you're just looking at it aesthetically. But me, I was like, no, nah, this doesn't look right. That's yeah, not you me. got a piece of gum. Right, <laughs> exactly right. So uh, I gave it a call and I, was, I left him a message. Said, okay, give me a call in the morning. And my wife's like, "What time are they open again?" You can call them like when they open up. So I, I didn't remember. So I'm like, "I yeah, call them back because they said it on the message." So I was just expecting to do that and hang up. And the doctor picked up. He was still there after hours screwing around or whatever. He says, "Yeah, just come on in tomorrow." So I'm like, "Okay, well I don't care. You know, I'll come in early in the morning if you want. Whatever you need." And squeeze me in somewhere. So he squeezed me in this morning, and we spent, like, yeah, I guess it was an hour or so down there. You know, did, you get, did he give you a Novocaine? No, actually, he didn't need to. I had no nerve, whatever, which is fascinating. He was actually spraying stuff up there and testing it with the drill. He's like, okay, there's a little bit of decay there that might cause this to fall out. You know, let me go and drill this. You know, do you feel anything? He's like, yeah, you know what? We can do this without anything. <laughs> All right. So he did, and I didn't feel a damn thing. Oh, you're but, a fuck. You, know. you know, because <laughs> I went to this guy uh, a couple of years ago, and he was local, mm -hmm. Yeah, I went to them before, but I had broke this tooth really, like, really bad. It just, all of a sudden, boom. Wow, wow. Right. You know, I was having dinner with my friend, and then it happened. So next day, you know, of course, it's late. Everything's closed. You know, next day, I call this guy, and 
And he goes with the with the water, and he, you know, the jet. Right. Let me know if this hurts. <laughs> you could see it's broken. Why would you do that? Are you? Do you not know what you're doing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly right. I'm mean, like, come on. Yeah. No, actually, it's funny that you're going through this whole thing because Saturday afternoon, I'm just sitting down. I just did my laundry. It was so fucking humid. Right. And I was just exhausted. And all of a sudden, it was bothering me on the bottom. And, you know, I have, like, teeth that are too close together and stuff like that. Yeah, I got the same problem, yeah. Oh, shit. Not killing me, but yeah, it was going on and off. So I took I took some uh, between the leave and, you know, I got some old painkillers, but, you know, people say, oh, don't, don't, don't worry about the, the expiration date and these things, but I don't know. I hate doing that. <laughs> and then I got less bothersome, and then one day it didn't bother me, and then yesterday, a little bit early in the morning, it bothered me. Today, this is wood. Right. <laughs> hasn't bothered me at all. Good. So I'm thinking, you know, I have these blown-out sinuses from when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. so when I get bad sinus issues and I was sneezing like an idiot the other day right I just wonder if it's somehow related and that's gotten a little better and maybe it's related but I figured if it was you know you should think it to yourself but if it was like could be why you might not feel it now you know it's going right. feel later and hopefully it won't feel in the morning but mm-hmm. yeah it's funny yeah you know you get a little older this, this is a thing you know <laughs> yeah all the bullshit happens and that was after uh, another filling that was really old. A big one in the back fell out back in February. Well, so you, this is actually the yeah. second time this year I've been there for, for similar shit. <laughs> well, you know, back in the day, when the day being even up until the early... Probably the early 90s. For me, I would say uh, maybe the mid-2000s, they, a lot of these guys were keen on the native root canal because oh, they didn't God. get much back from the insurance. And they would get a lot more back and yep. more from you. Uh, we ran away from a couple people that we tried and other recommendations yeah. that literally, uh, there's one woman, an Indian woman we went to, and I literally walk in the door, she says, oh, you need four root canals. I'm like, what? Get the fuck out of here. So the first person I went to, and I was like, I even mentioned it or anything. I was like, look, you know, you don't see nothing, right? And I was like, no, everything's fine, you know, whatever. I says, you know, I just went to some lunatic that told me I need four root canals. Well, like, the, yeah, yeah, you know. The thing is, you know, <laughs> and this is, this is the honest truth to you. I, I'm genetically, they, they feel on me. Over mm-hmm. time, and it's the worst pain. Yeah. Because, you know, they they rip all that stuff out. They supposedly clean it out, but what happens is but they're pushing down and pushing down. And, you know, yep. they, it no gets close to the nerve, and then they you start getting the pockets there, like almost a like cavity type stuff. Yeah. yeah. I know. Trust me. <laughs> and, yeah. So I'm like, pull this out. But it's a root canal. Pull it out. Take that fucking root out. Because, you know, when you get a root canal, they leave the root in, and that's the thing that gets bad. And, uh, you know, I'm missing a couple of teeth, but it's all right, you know. Yeah, they mentioned root canal, like, I tell God, it's true. <laughs> Genetically, it's not good for me. I ain't got that much. Take the fucking tooth out. So, uh, I was curious what was going to happen with this, but today, nothing. So, I'm like, please. <laughs> yeah, I hope you feel better. I'm glad you got taken care of. Oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. Yeah. It's purely cosmetic. I didn't feel a damn thing. It's just like, this is really bizarre. I don't like this. Because, you know, I kept feeling it with your tongue, this big hole. That, it wasn't just that, okay, you get this chip that's missing, which sucks. I've had that before. I've, I've actually gone for a bit without getting it replaced at one point. Years ago, I'm talking yeah. about. You know, this was just like, he had dug out so much of the tooth underneath. And, you know, there was a giant gap, supposed to a little one. And this, whatever the hell's up there, I'm like, no, I'm not sitting through this. No way. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Oh, jeez. Yeah, we got people upstairs. I don't know what the fuck their problem is. They're, like, storming around all the time. And they're always blasting something that, I don't know, if it's like a retarded dance music or a really bad rap. Because the beat never changes. Or... And it goes for hours. I'm like, what the hell are you playing? Are you are you in a condo? Yeah. Yo, stop that shit. Well, the problem is, I think there's a renter because that guy keeps uh, changing? changing up his people. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know. I've uh, not about that, but I've complained to the building because like there's crazy shit. Like I mentioned the other day, some fuck left a garbage bag in front of our door. Like you open up the door and it falls in on your foot. I'm like. You know that's deliberate. Who the hell did this? Yeah, shit? who did that? Yeah. yeah, right. So, and there's a lot of stuff going on. They actually have a thing up in the elevators. Like whoever's leaving dog piss in the elevators, you clean it up. And I'm like, whoa! I hate metal. That's why. I blasting that metal music. They're like, what the fuck is that, man? Well, I do, yeah. And then they'll, they'll try to play this shit back. I guess. I mean, one time it was funny because I was blasting a lot of death metal, and I had stopped, you know, changed CDs or whatever the hell. And I'm hearing death metal coming from upstairs. I'm like, what? <laughs> Because it's always like, you know, this boom, 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 dance music or whatever the hell it is. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. That is interesting, huh? <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? That's right. What else is going on with me this week? Because this is not going to be a long show. I don't perceive it to be one. I don't think it'll be nice. No, no. What else happened? I finally got a hold the John Hancock life insurance. Right. It's, his stuff is very, very, very on their websites. Like, you know, beneficiary claims and stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's like a 22-page packet I printed out. And then some of it was the stuff, all of it also, the, the last few pages was the stuff I have to send them. So call us to get this. And like, so you're counting on people not to read? I don't have to call them for this. You know, I'll just fill the stuff out, send them a copy of the death certificate and just see what happens. The other one, Chubb, Chubb Life Insurance, something like that. Okay. I had to call them because it's funny. They're pretty big, actually. Their websites are kind of like, eh, you know. Mm-hmm. It's all about you know, contact us to get life insurance, make your family happy. Well, not happy, but you know. I called them. Actually, not too long away, the lady was pretty cool. She asked me some questions I couldn't answer. When were <laughs> your parents married? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, I hate when they ask you crazy shit. I'm like, who would know this? I, mean, I, I understand that they're trying to protect you from identity fraud, but I don't know that shit. Yeah, I said, I may have that here somewhere. I don't even know who can answer that. Mm-hmm. No. What hospital were your parents born in? Who the fuck knows? When were your mother's <laughs> parents married? I have no idea. Yeah. And there was one funny moment. She goes, oh, I have to ask you this. Are you over 18? I said, you ready for this one? I said, well, yeah, you sound it. And I had to ask, what the fuck does that mean? You sound it? What kind of shit is that? I don't sound fun. <laughs> you sound like a mature, amorous gentleman, maybe, but no. <laughs> I don't think you sound Yeah, whatever. <laughs> No, who sounds like who sounds like fifty? And why would you even say that to somebody? Because you know it's going to come off like an insult, regardless how you meant it. <laughs> yeah, but the icing on the cake was two days ago. I get this call. I said, I know this number. This is the number I called for my mother's sister. And I, you know, and you may remember that story. So I called back. She answered. And it's the same woman who said she wasn't alive. I'm like, right, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I actually got to spoke to her. Or an hour. She said my mother used to visit a lot. She said she visited my mother. I, this is all news to me. My, my mother never mentioned that. Uh, I said, look, I grabbed some stuff from the house. I can send it to you. Give me your mail address. So I Googled it. I'm like, but this is, and the Google, she's the owner of the house with her husband. And I'm like, you didn't help my mom out. <laughs> my, mother, <laughs> my mother, you got a two-story house 
in Long Island, Seacliff, which is not mm. a bad area, and you got land and you got a big ass front yard. Like, and, you know, she sounds like she might have been the youngest of the sisters, too. So I, I would say maybe mid 60s to early 70s. And I'm like, you guys didn't help her out? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking this, you know. So I said, you know, I grabbed some things. I don't want all these pictures. I'll send you some of the pictures and give me about a week. And, mm -hmm. You know, she gave me her email. She said, send me an email. So I sent her an email. I never heard back from her, unless it's incorrect. Because I thought she said Aragorn, which is from Lord of the Rings, and some numbers in a Gmail. But she goes, no, it's Aragon. I said, Aragon. Okay. <laughs> like Catherine of Aragon? <laughs> well, yeah, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe she's a Lord of the Rings fan. So I might resend it to Aragorn. So, here's the funny thing. She called me back, my cousin who passed away just weeks before my mom passed. She didn't believe that she died. So anyway, so when she called me back, she goes, he asked if he could talk to you. Sure. You give him my number. But I don't always answer my phone if I don't recognize the number. So tell him if he calls to leave a message and I'll call him back. Yeah, he wants to talk to you, you know, because he was paying your mother's uh, cable and he was paying your mother's ba ba ba. Yeah, probably wants some money from you now. <laughs> I said, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I texted my wife, who was still at that point in Maine. I said, you won't believe this. I told Rod and my wife in a text, I said, if this guy fucking asked me for money, I'm like, look, dude. <laughs> then chip in for, for what I paid for all the shit that I had to pay for. You mm -hmm. know? Exactly. Talking a couple of grand right here. That's the problem. There's always hangers on. That's why they always tell people that win the lottery. Don't say nothing, nobody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, why do you want, you know? So since you brought that up, I'm sure he mentioned that in the conversation to her. Look what happened to Hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's where his money went. You know, he's like trying to be a do-gooder. Oh, yeah, I'll help all the guys in the hood. And all of a sudden he's flat busted. <laughs> mm -hmm. Doing gangster rap albums. Well, anyway. <laughs> anyway, so I, oh, I didn't even get to bitch about Podbean. Oh, so what happened there? I saw you complaining about it. I, I so, so I read through everything. Mm-hmm. I signed up for the audio video thing, which is 40 a month. It's not terrible. Okay. Like I pay $400 a month shot. Yeah, yeah, and once you're in there, they tell you, well, we don't have software on our desktop version that you can record you. Okay. You have to download the app to your phone and record it that way. And then they, they had all these pictures. and. Uh, How the fuck are you going to record to your phone? I thought you are using a headset and a microphone. Like... <laughs> right, exactly. Right? So And, and, and a camera. And, and they're like, record it to your phone, and they have, like, these videos. And and they, they don't show you who's using it. <laughs> but they, you know, like, they, they show you time lapse of, like, and then there's this feature, automatic backgrounds. And then there's there's this feature where you can, you know, change the intonation of your voice. It's, you can do this on YouTube. People always film from their trucks and shit. <laughs> I'm like, it's on your fucking phone. Then it says, easy to upload. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> the only thing you could do was, which is what I did when I normally record it for YouTube. Yeah. You know, it's not on YouTube. It's on, you know, I, I, I record it through the, the camera and phone using the uh, ProSonos Audio Box software. Okay. And I uploaded it very quickly. Pardon me. They kept my other email address as the owner. I'm like, okay, but nobody knows that email address. It should say colors of product. All right, whatever. So I managed to go in and change that. So I had a nice picture. They rejected that picture. So I have the stupid thing of the, the light box. Okay, that's fine. So it said, shareable. Okay. It would not share to YouTube. It would not share to Facebook. I had to go in, copy, and then share it to Facebook. You know, like cut, cut and paste. Yeah, yeah. And then 
I could not, I, I tried several times, I could not get it to share it to uh, YouTube. I already have it on my desktop. I'll just upload it to YouTube, which takes like about an hour sometimes. Oh, my God. You know what? Just go to their customer service because I found them very helpful when I was doing yeah, this. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I'm going to give them another shot. But it looks like, it looks like the only way to record at this time, and it's the, they keep specifying it at this time, with the audio video thing is on your phone. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Because then you have to. So what I did is I ordered a backdrop. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, three by five, so it's not that bad. It's a frame I put up, which I'll probably have to take apart. Mm-hmm. And I got, I got some backdrops, $10 a piece. So when you see my fucking face, I'll have something cool behind me mm-hmm. instead of the apartment. Yeah. Right, right. So I'm trying my best to work on a budget. You know, the guy from Chiller who does the sound there late last night sent me a message saying uh, he's working with this Fleetwood Mac cover band. And, you know, he sent me a clip. So, well, they sound really good. You know, mm-hmm. I have this set up at Chiller. He sends me a soundboard. You need this for the colors of Prague. It's only three grand. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I am not monetizing this at this point. I don't exactly. even know how to. It's not why I'm doing it. Who's paying for this shit? I mean, I would love to make some damn money off of this. I've been doing this stuff for a decade now, plus. Right, you know, yeah, like, right. We've both been working on this together for a long time. Mm-hmm. We had a blip of, like, maybe less than a year, but I've been doing this colors of thing a year plus, but... I started doing that at a level with my buddy Matt there. That was right. his show originally. Back in 2011. Mm. Then Third Eye started at the very end of 2011, the very dawn of 2012. And then came this show like a couple of years later, and I had moving towards light for a bit. I mean, at one point I had four podcasts going on, but... Yeah, yeah never moving toward light. Yeah, I've been doing this for a long friggin' time. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just never came into my mind to make money. And with the YouTube thing, I just want to increase my subscribers. You know, I want to get the name out there. I want to get people like, you see this, you don't know what it is. That's yeah. why I keep posting the videos on Facebook. Because, you know, check it out. You might find something you like. The, the biggest thing I had, and I didn't even know it was going to be, and I, I haven't returned to that format, was I just did one show on Bill Bruford. Maybe it was well written. I do research and stuff like you do, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wrote out a lot of stuff and all about Bill Bruford. Of course, you had to cherry pick like everything. You know, yeah. You could make a career like that. But people loved it. I had the most views of that ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I get this. I look at the stats. I'm like, are you yeah. fucking kidding me? <laughs> it's like I had shows that got thousands and thousands of friggin' views, and not even just the podcast, but the state itself. Yeah. But, you know, the, the fluctuation goes up and down. It depends, it like, down, but, yeah. you know, who you're reviewing and you know, what labels you're working and, with and or what video companies. One, this is the first one I did since my mother passed, too. So it was like, because I just wasn't in the mood, you know. But I forced myself to work on this. Actually, when I was at the office last week, it was so hot outside. I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to start spending this downtime at work because not too many people in the office. I start working on the next show, you know. Mm-hmm. But I was like so disappointed with the pot being like a, you know. I am shocked. I mean, I mean, I didn't know about this because I don't do video, but I had a, such a good experience with them, especially compared to freaking blog talk and a piece of shit there. Yeah, no. There's so many problems there, as people know who listen to the old shows. If you're <laughs> but... recording audio only, it's mucho different. And you know, and I, I thought about it, and I, I mentioned this to you before I even joined that. I was like. Well, part of it is cheaper, but part of it is, like, nobody really knows what you're talking about if you don't hold up these things for them to see. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because 
Sedanda just hearing something about an obscure band from another country. They have no idea if they... Well, that's why with Third Eye, I used to play some of the music, especially when I had the people on. I was interviewing yeah. everybody. And with the website itself, you got the pictures of the album, sometimes you get pictures of the bands. But yeah, I mean, here, obviously, people just got to go out and find the movies themselves. I could definitely hear that with yours. But I'm really wondering, like I said, just go and talk to them because yeah. maybe there's somebody that can work around it. Maybe they can get you through a cheaper plan for just audio. Or maybe you can just cut ties. You know, all right, well, yeah. didn't work out, and I'll find somebody else. Because yeah, I don't think they're going to try to screw you over. I've, I've had very good experience with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 uh, let's see. No, I'm not totally prepared, but it's like how to do it. I, you know, I had to move it over to YouTube, too, because I'm doing three times the amount of work. <laughs> all right, uh, so let me uh, test, test this test. monster. <laughs> let me know.